The nail in the coffin! Welcome to The Nail. I'm Tom Valentino. He is Travis Yuley. Trav, how you doing, buddy? How's the uh, uh, shelter-in-place initiative going for you? I tell you, Tom, it's not really that different than than every other day, so fine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I work from home, so I, I rarely leave the house as it is during the week, um, so not a big change there. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. We, uh, yeah. We're holding it together here at the, uh, the Valentino household as yeah, well. All people that are like all of a sudden now working from home. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's welcome great. to the party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where you guys been? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, Hey, listen, um, was, uh, hanging out on Saturday afternoon and looking for something to watch while I was doing some laundry. And I saw that the Duke Kentucky NCAA tournament game from 1992 was on. For my money, this is the greatest game of all time. I know you don't think so. I'm sure we're going to get into that here as we go along. But uh, as I was doing this, I was also coming through Twitter, and I saw uh, Tom Withers of the Associated Press here in Cleveland uh, casually throw out that uh, he had a pretty good seat for that game, and uh, he's uh, doing us a big favor joining us here tonight. Tom, uh, welcome back to The Nail, first of all, and uh, tell us about uh, where you were uh, for Duke, Kentucky. Yeah, hey, hey, Tom and Travis, thanks, man. Yeah, so I was, um, I was seated about, oh, I guess ten to twelve feet behind uh, Coach Shashevsky, and uh, yeah, a night that I'll never forget, a weekend that I'll never forget, um, and yeah, rewatching that game the other night, still, Tom gave me kind of uh, raised my blood pressure a little bit because I was kind of reliving all those moments down the stretch in regulation and in overtime and all the big shots and the big moments and everything that transpired. That was um, one of the greatest things. It, you know, it may end up being the greatest game that I ever covered. Who were you working for at that point? Were you with the AP already or were you working for another organization? So I was with UPI. So I don't know if a lot of people remember United Press International was essentially the Associated Press, the Associated Press's um, top competition back in the day. And that's where I began my journalism career in New York um, in 1988. And so fast forward to 1992, I was one of the college basketball writers for UPI and um, was lucky enough to be given the assignment of the East Regional and um, never could have imagined that it would turn into being, a, you know, a not only a, one of the games of all time, but it was also a weekend where people forget that John Calipari was with the UMass team that had made it to that, the final four there in that region. And um, it was just a an interesting weekend from, from the get-go. We had so many, that's the old, that was the old spectrum in Philadelphia. And leading into that game, we had so many problems just from, and I know people don't care about media people's problems, but from a logistical standpoint, we had issues with the phones. Um, there was just all kinds of problems with them getting box scores to the media. And it was just like one thing after another had gone wrong and then on Saturday night, you know, we're given this gift that, you know, turns out to be this game that we're all still talking about. I don't know how many years now, 28 years later. I got to tell you, I was almost hesitant to put that game on and actually watch it because <laughs> when that was played, you know, watching it live, I 
you know, I was, I think about, I, I don't know, 10 or so. And I, now you're making me really feel old, Tommy. I'm sorry. I almost hesitated okay, to say ahead. that, but it's all right. <laughs> you know, it was like one of those, it's like that, that age where it's like really your formative years as a sports fan. And sure. that was, and really that was like right around that time I started really getting into college basketball. And I distinctly remember that game because that night, um, my parents had made plans to go out to, I think, a winery with some neighbors, and there were no TVs there. And my dad was a huge sports fan as well. It's where I got it from. Well, both my parents were. But um, he was just kind of like, oh, you know, hey, I'm going to miss some games. It is what it is. No big deal. So I'm home by myself or, you know, I've, I've got one of my uh, relatives uh, babysitting or whatever, and I'm downstairs watching this game alone, absolutely losing my mind. And I remember that my parents got home about uh, 15 minutes after that game ended. And I immediately ran upstairs and met him at the door and told my dad, I go, you just missed the greatest game of all time. And if you could have seen his shoulders sink and just his whole expression drop. So, of course, when this comes out on Saturday, I had to text him. I go, hey, you get a chance at a do-over here. You got to turn your TV on. But I was nervous because I was like, I remembered this being amazing in the moment. And I'm like, you know, was that just nostalgia? But like, no, this game still holds up. It certainly does. You know, and and people forget, too. I mean, you know, 104, 103 in overtime, which is, you know, a pretty high number, you know, at any point um, in college basketball history, just to see that many points scored. But I think people forget, too, that, you know, both teams shot nearly 60 percent from the field. Um, you know, Leitner, as we know, was 10 of 10 from the field, 10 of 10 from the line. He had that moment with Timberlake where in today's game, he probably would have been ejected and that never happens. You know, you've got the Grant Hill pass that leads to the Leitner shot. You had the Sean Woods shot that preceded the Leitner shot. Um, you know, all the history with Kentucky, you know, not only being the blue blood broke program, but, you know, what they had gone through and that that program had been decimated to nothing. And then Patino comes in and takes it over. And those seniors that hung around for all those years, there they are on the floor playing this great game. And this Duke team was on, you know, this this dynasty run that they were on. I think they made it to five finals, if I'm not mistaken, or five final fours in five straight years. Um, you know, it was Coach K, you know, emerging as this great coach that now has 1,100 wins or whatever it is. So it was really a pivotal moment in many ways. You know, you look back at college basketball over the last 40 or 50 years, and people will talk about, you know, the Houston-UCLA game back with Elvin Hayes and, and Lou Alcindor, and then the, the UCLA run, and then, you know, a couple of great games there in, in the early 80s, whether it was Michael Jordan shot as a freshman or, um, you know, those great years that, that the Big East had. But then, you know, 1992 and this Duke team and this Kentucky game really became one of those those moments that everybody looks back on and remembers. I know we yeah, were talking I gotta, about- I gotta I gotta stop you for a minute um okay. I'll take you back to something you just mentioned and it's the it's the biggest thing to me that keeps this from being one of these these all-time great games now obviously on paper and watching the end of the game you can't top the ending but the one thing that sort of keeps it from me is that the shot that everyone talks about that is arguably the most you know one of the I don't know three or four most iconic shots of college basketball history probably should have never happened because as you alluded to, Christian Leitner should have been ejected from that game. 
as a guy who has grown up and I didn't watch the game live. So all of my um, knowledge of it is <laughs> watching, replay, is watching right? the replay and all these things sure. since then. Um, I was eight years old at the time and I've seen, you know, I didn't, I don't even remember seeing it until a, a year or two later where I got a little more into watching March Madness and I can't, as a guy who has grown up throughout the years seeing a Duke gets every call and B if you stomp on a guy's chest, you're supposed to be ejected from the game. Like that's supposed to be relatively uh, black and white as far as I can tell. Um, what was at the time? What was the, what was the debate? Um, did people feel like that got called right? Did they feel like, like what was, what was people's response to that? Because in my opinion, if, if you weren't supposed to be on the court, I don't really care that you hit a big shot. Yeah, no, I hear you. So I think, you know, stomp is a word that might be a little bit strong for that. I mean, if you watch it. I does, didn't. Well, I, that's not my words. That's Christian Leitner's words. He yeah, no, I hear you. He, he does step on him and he definitely did it on purpose. I mean, there was no question about it. And I got a kick out of it, you know, watching the replay like you guys did on Saturday where, where Vern Lundquist immediately was like, oh, yes. yeah, that was intentional. <laughs> and so, um, you know, un, you know, back in the day, as you guys saw, there wasn't this immediate turn to replay, which I think, to me, looking back on it, is, is somewhat refreshing because they were really putting putting in the in the hands of the officials that were on the floor, and it was Tim Higgins and I forget it, the other officials that were working that game. So I got to interrupt if, you if, again, Tom. I'm not sure I like got, any situation where we're putting the control in college basketball officials' hands. From what I've seen from <laughs> college you. basketball officials over the years. Well, and as a as a high school coach, I would uh, I would second that. So, um, yeah. So, you know, it was just a different age, to be honest. So you were just kind of like I said, you were putting the trust in in the guys that were on the floor. And, you know, the um, the replays that they showed in the spectrum at that time were I mean, you guys can imagine, you know, 1992, you know, a grainy, you know, screen high above the center of the court at the spectrum. You know, there were no you know, people weren't watching it on, you know, 65 inch plasma TVs in the suites there. So, you know, and then on press row, I mean, we were lucky if we had a video monitor every five seats. So everybody was kind of clamoring, clamoring around those to see, you know, to get an angle of what exactly had happened. So it happened so fast. And, um, you know, there was some outrage. I mean, I mean, I remember, you know, Patino screaming his head off, like he's got to be kicked out of the game. And um, amazingly too, they had Leitner ended up shooting, he got fouled on the play, right? So he ended up shooting first before the technical was called. And I think they showed the replay once or twice in the arena. And people were like, wow, that was really bad. But I think there was also this element of, okay, it's Christian Leitner. He gets away with anything anyway. He always has. And so it was kind of like, you know, pushed to the side. Like, we're seeing such a great game. Why would you take the guy that's having the best, the best game of his life, arguably, off the floor at that time? So I agree with you. There's probably, you know... Looking back, it was probably not officiated the way it should have been officiated. But then again, we wouldn't have that great shot, Travis, and we wouldn't be so talking it, about so it right if it, now. So if it was anyone other than Christian Leitner, what's the result? <laughs> um, man, Bobby Hurley might have got away with it too because he got away that's with a lot helping, as well. That's not helping your case. <laughs> I hear you. No, it's, um, you know, it's also part of the reason. And listen, you know, Duke was as loved and as hated then as they are now, and that was probably. That was one of the teams that really defined kind of that, you know, you either you love them or you hate them kind of kind of 
Duke feeling that's out there, you know, that's pervasive across the country right now. And so, you know, that was um that was quite a Duke team. That was quite a Kentucky team. And um, yeah, you know, looking back, you know, right now he would have been thrown out of the game probably in about 30 seconds. I'm so glad you brought up Vern Lundquist on the call and that you got to enjoy listening so to that good. now. His, his, uh, his breakdown of that afterwards, Led Elmore tried to hedge a little bit. I don't know if that was, oh, yeah. if he did that on purpose and Vern it was having none of it. He just immediately, yeah, he did. Pretty oh, yes, obvious did. call. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you saw too how, you know, I mean, look, when you watch games now, I mean, you know, they didn't show the score or the time for like, you know, five minutes, five minute stretches during the game. It was so frustrating watching it even on Saturday. Like, good God, did, you know, did they not realize how great a game this was as it was, as it was taking place? Um, so, you know, we're all, you know, we're all so blessed now to be able to watch these games the way we do and, you know, have, you know, instant replay and, and rewind and everything else. So it was just, it was a different time and it's not even that long ago. I would venture a guess that Vern understood uh, the magic that was unfolding right there. I have questions about Len Elmore though, because when Sean Woods hit his shot that put them up their le- the Kentucky's last basket, they go to that timeout and everybody's going crazy. And he's just like, yeah, I know it went in, but that's a terrible it's shot. A terrible shot. I know. Like, come and on, I, man. It's funny you say that Tom, because I was texting somebody as we were watching the replay on Saturday and I said, wait till you, and it was somebody that didn't really remember the game as well as I did. I said, if if not for Leitner, we would always remember this wood shot, which was a remarkable shot that he was off balance. He had to put it up about 14 feet to even get it over. I, I forget who it was that was closing on him. It might have been Leitner, actually. And he banked it in. And, I mean, that would be the shot that would live in Kentucky infamy if not for the Leitner shot. Yeah. So as this game's unfolding and you're sitting there yeah. on press row, is there like a moment there where you're kind of looking around at everybody uh, working next to you saying, like, we're witnessing one of the greatest games of all time. Does it even hit you in that moment when you're it's in the funny building? You say that, Tom. Yeah, a bunch of times actually. Um, a good friend of mine, and, and God rest his soul, Jim O'Connell from the Associated Press, who unfortunately passed away last year. Um, we used to sit right next to each other when I was with UPI and he was with AP um, at Madison Square Garden, and I sat with Ock for I can't tell you how many games, and lucky enough to cover a couple of Olympics. Um, as not only as competitor, but then as a colleague when I moved over to the AP two years later. And during the game, um, Ock and I would kind of, he was about four seats to my right. Um, I would lean back and say, like, Ock, can you believe that shot? Or or how many timeouts do they have left or whatever? I mean, it was like, again, it was such a different time that we didn't have, like, the technology that we have now where you could, you know, you were following Game Tracker on ESPN or whatever else. I mean, I had my my Radio Shack Candy, which had about 40 characters on it. I mean, your phone right now would do a better job than, you know, in in, uh, in terms of technology than I had back then. And so Ock and I occasionally would, like, look at each other, like, can you believe this game is happening right now? And then when we, get, we would get the box scores about every five minutes, and that was at the point where I realized that Leitner hadn't missed. And I think the last box score that I got was the 16-minute mark. So with four minutes to go, in regulation. And at that point, I believe Leitner was eight of eight from the field and nine of nine or eight of eight or eight of eight from, from the line. And I was like, wow, this guy's having an unbelievable game. You know, what, what could top that? And then sure enough, you know, he ends up making that shot. And um, so, yeah, we did, we had that sense, Tom, 
as it was coming down the stretch that we were really seeing something special. Yeah, the other thing that you mentioned about how both teams overall were shooting well, you look at that score, I think they both put up 93 points in regulation. They both went over 100. Right. And what blew my mind and I had completely forgotten about was at that point, college basketball still had a 45-second shot clock. And yeah. that game never felt like it was no. dragging at all. No, not at all. And that's how, you know, that's how Duke played as well. You know, they would turn you over and they could fast break and they could finish. And you know what? And I, I was even pointing it out to my son. I think people forget, and I brought him up earlier, Bobby Hurley, you know, whatever he became as a pro didn't matter. But that guy was one of the best point guards I have ever seen. I mean, just, you know, selfless, you know, knew how to run the floor, knew how to, you know, when, when things were going bad, he knew when to back the ball out. He knew when to get it to Leitner. He knew when to find guys. He really did a, a, a great job of, of really being a playmaker and kind of a, a floor general, if you will. And that team played good defense as well. And, and then you forget, too, that, you know, that, that Kentucky team could shoot. And, you know, Mashburn, you know, at that time was as good as anybody in college basketball. And they had, they had all kinds of weapons. I mean, they could shoot it from outside. They had a decent inside game. And um, you're right. I mean, that game from, from start to finish was just played at an extraordinarily high level. So the journalism nerd in me has to ask, were you happy with the story that you wrote that night? Do you remember anything uh, of it? Because I'm trying to like picture dealing with trying to put something together on deadline from a game like that. And I wouldn't even know where to begin. You know, that's a great, that's, that's interesting, Tom. You would say that I was going through some old clippings the other day and I was actually searching for that game. And I haven't found my, what they call an optional lead or an alternate lead, which was, you know, trying, you know, trying to, you're right. Trying to, put that you know that game you know make make justice of it if you will and I think that's exactly kind of my idea on the lead was you know it was something that none of us could process and I think I used the anecdote of of Mike Krzyzewski sitting there you know looking at the box score trying to come up with the words because none of us could and um, I remember the follow stories that I wrote about and Travis brought this up before with the Timberlake issue you know the next day I remember writing about Leitner and you know for this sublime performance that he had, there was that, that misstep, pardon the pun, that, you know, um, ruined an otherwise, you know, perfect night for him. And then I remember also leading with that moment of, of Thomas Hill. I don't know if you remember the, the reserve for, for Duke, you know, when the shot goes in, he kind of puts his hands to his head and says, you know, oh my God. I mean, and that was like the, the emotion that, that everybody felt there. And, and, you know, along those lines, guys, I, I, I need to mention this, that it's one of the few games in my career where they had trouble clearing the arena after the game. I think they actually ended up having to make an announcement because nobody wanted to leave because people were just so, you know, riveted by what they had seen over that hour and a half or whatever it was when you put the, you know, the, the real clock on it. But, but people were just so stunned by that ending and trying to process exactly what they had seen that nobody wanted to leave. It was like really something you wanted to hold on to for a long time. And, you know, and I know, Travis, you don't necessarily consider it one of the great games of all time. But I, I think when you think about all the, the subplots and you think about the history of the game, this is one that really belongs in that in that very short conversation. Yeah, I guess. I'm a little, I'll admit, I'm a little biased, obviously, in this. I, I didn't see it live, so it's hard to, I think, looking at it 
in hindsight, if you didn't watch it live, I have a feeling most of your memory is really just the Leitner shot and the, I don't know right. what you want to call it, the step slash stomp, whatever you want to call whatever, it, right? Yeah. So that yeah. stuff is really what I remember from it. So it's hard for me to separate those two things from how good of a game it probably was. And I mean, not probably, definitely was. Um, especially, I think you, you guys have both mentioned it a couple of times, especially when you consider, I mean, what, what was the average score for a basketball game back then? in college mostly in like the 60s and 70s if, if that right kind of right yeah, it, yeah. yeah and that was that was a, a relatively high scoring game probably on an average night sure so the fact that both teams um swapped punch for punch right it wasn't like one team um it, it was it, it doesn't seem like there were big rallies like one team went on a huge run and then another team went on a huge run it seemed like it was really just even the whole way for the most part um so from you don't see that a whole lot um, and I think, I don't know, obviously because it's Duke and they've, they've obviously become the center of many fans scorn, right. For some reasons, <laughs> right. very valid other, other reasons, not so much, but, um, looking back on it, you know, 20, what is it almost shit, almost 30 years now, almost 30 um, years, yeah. which is wild to think about in and of itself. Um, looking at it from that perspective, it's, it's it's hard for me to look at it and separate that one moment and the guy that at least in my experience is the first guy that like made you not like Duke really. He was kind of <laughs> like, I mean, you've had yeah. a lot of guys since then, like you've had JJ Redick and you know, all those guys that have come through since. Um, but Leitner's kind of that first guy and he really embraced it. Um, oh, he did. I mean, that's so what it's, made so them great. I mean, that was the, that was the mystique of that team, right? I mean, he was kind of the pretty boy, but I tell you what, what a ball player. And, um, you know, people forget, too, that he was also on, you know, later that year, he played on the dream team um, as the as the only college player on the greatest team ever assembled. So um, you're right. And, and I think also people forget, too, that, you know, up until then, you know, no team had won two consecutive NCAA titles in a row since UCLA. And, you know, that Duke team was able to go on and do that when they went up in um, they in Minneapolis beat. Uh, Michigan and the Fab Five for um, for their second straight title. So there were, yeah, again, there were a lot of tentacles, you know, around that and a lot of subplots that to me, like, I'll ask you this, Travis, like, give me a game since then that is better. Um, I think the, I don't know about better. And again, I didn't watch Villanova, the Carolina. Villanova, Carolina is up there. Um, that's a good question, though. Um, the, the Kansas game where Chalmers, Chalmers hit the three. Good one. Um, Great game. Um, I, I'm biased. I've seen some great Ohio State games, but um, I wouldn't put them in the in the same no, level. Um, I, I recall right. that I recall the the run they made with the Odin team, where they had the scare against Xavier, and then they had the huge comeback against Tennessee. Um, those were both really good games, but not in the same ballpark. Obviously, right. I'm biased because right. I was rooting for Ohio State. I remember those games as a fan, but um, yeah, I mean, it, as a game. If you take that one part out, and I, I, I just, I can't separate the two. <laughs> and, and again, I'm a fan, you. and I don't, I don't know how many people look at these things completely unbiased. I, I don't, I think that's nearly impossible. You're not supposed um, to, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's sports, right? It's, it's you're supposed to look yeah. at it as a fan. That's the point. So, um, exactly. It's always there, and I recall, and it's funny because you mentioned Leitner being on the Dream Team. As I recall, it, it became pretty apparent during the dream team practices that in no way did Christian Leitner belong on the dream team. Um, <laughs> yeah. But 
I mean, that's that's a debate for another day. As, as a college well, player, yeah, but that was also right. Yeah. That was a, you know you got to remember too. That was you know the first time that the pros had been involved in the Olympics, and I was you know very lucky to be um, chosen to, to cover that dream team. So I was over there in Barcelona, and that was partly a nod by USA Basketball to wanting to think about the future, right? So they they looked at Leitner as okay, he's arguably the best game in college, the best player in college basketball right now. We need to have, to have him as part of the program because we can foresee him being as part of the 1996 team. So um, that's the, the main reason he was on there. And also Coach K was an assistant on that team under under Chuck Daly. So, um, yeah, Christian was along for the ride. And um, he's like a, he's like one of those trivia questions that people forget that, you know, when you start rattling off all those Hall of Famers, and I think every guy on the team now is a Hall of Famer, that, uh, that Christian Leitner was on that squad. Yeah, it's weird to think about, you know, Coach K as an assistant on the uh, Team USA staff gets his player from Duke on there, but Chuck Daly, the head coach, did not have Isaiah Thomas on that team. <laughs> well, Michael was not going to let Isaiah on that squad. Trust yeah. me, <laughs> that's uh, that's probably a whole separate podcast. Yeah, we no know. What we know what as as we're trying to find sports things to talk about. I think we know what we need <laughs> yeah. to invite Tom on for next. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I was going to say uh, when uh, the the uh, ten part series on uh, the Bulls comes out that documentary later this summer. Uh, I'm sure that'll that'll come up there. But um, hey, Tom, the uh, other thing that we wanted to ask you about here, real quick, before we let you run, you mentioned being a coach as well. It's been super interesting to us to follow along over this past winter. You were uh, serving as an assistant varsity coach for the Westlake girls basketball team. I'm kind of curious, how long have you been involved with the program there and coaching in general and how'd that whole gig come about? Cause that's a real interesting yeah, combination. Interesting. To be a- Thanks Tom. Yeah. I, um, I would, I had helped with the uh, Westlake boys team for um, five or six years. My son played basketball at Westlake. And when he was a freshman, they were kind of short staffed. And at one point I kind of raised my hand and said, Hey, I'd be happy to help out. I can, you know, come and rebound and, and do whatever you guys need to do to kind of help, help the program. And so that parlayed into (laughs) next thing I knew I was making substitutions in the freshman games and sitting on the bench in the JV games and then on the varsity staff. And so that was a, a fun run and I decided to step away from it last year and then uh, the girls coach Karen Swanson Hahn um, who played at Notre Dame and is a Westlake graduate um, had lost her assistant coach um, who had stepped down for personal reasons and and needed someone and she called me up I guess they were about seven or eight games into their season and asked if I would be interested and um, I went up to a couple practices and we decided to give it a run and I stayed for that year and then this past season and had an absolute blast. Um, we had a we had a great year. We went 22 and four and won the shared the conference title with Olmstead Falls and won the district title and, and just had a blast. So um, it's been great and very rewarding. And when I if I could you know redo things, I probably would have gotten more involved in coaching than I even did when uh, my son was coming up and I helped him out with you know soccer and baseball and basketball and wherever I could. But it's a uh, it's great. It's great to be around the kids and we're very fortunate in Westlake. We have, you know, good families and good kids and, and great facilities. And uh, it's been, it's just been a lot of fun. I was going to say the girls hoops programs in Northeast Ohio in general, there, there's some really good teams around I, here. And uh, cause I, I can remember it's been, you know, over 10 years now, but when I was working for the, uh, the news Herald, that was my beat was covering high school girls basketball. There you go. And, yeah. Uh, 
I, I loved it. It was great. There was a lot of good teams. I mean, that was like right at the height of uh, Regina and uh, some of their uh, sure. great, uh, kids that they had coming through then. But uh, yeah, I mean, even still, I know Regina's not around anymore, but uh, there's some really good programs. And, you know, your credit, congrats to a uh, great season that you guys had uh, winning the Thanks. district. Yeah. That's that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, you know, Tom, there's, you know, there's great talent. There's great coaching, um, you know, very competitive. You know, the, the girls game has really evolved, you know, as you know, I don't know how many years ago it was now where they went to the smaller ball and that's just allowed the girls to, you know, have, you know, better ball handling skills and things like that. And while the game is not played at the rim, you know, like the men's game is there's, you know, there's, you know, sometimes there's better passing and, and better defense and um, not, not the reliance on, you know, quickly getting it down the floor and shooting the first three that's available. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really good. And I've, I've, you know, been fortunate enough to coach in the Southwestern Conference, which is, you know, and I've been told this by college coaches around Ohio, that is as, as competitive a conference as there is in the state. And so it's, um, you better be ready every single night and, and have your girls ready. Otherwise you're in for a, you're in for a fight. So, um, yeah, it's been good. I hope to, um, I hope to continue it. It, it, it keeps me young and, uh, and keeps me active and I still try to get out there with the girls and, and try not to hurt myself. Um, which is getting harder and harder to do as I get older. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a real thrill. So the one other question that I had about this is, have your experiences coaching the, the high school players in any way shaped the way that you're viewing sports <laughs> on, like, the pro level when you're covering games? And has anything that you've picked up covering the pros translated to stuff that you discuss when you're coaching? That's an excellent question. And um, yes, yes, and yes. Um, I've had some very interesting conversations with um, Terry Francona and Teron Liu and Freddie Kitchens and other coaches here about the similarities between coaching high school girls basketball and coaching the Browns, the Cavs, and the Indians. It's, um, you know, sports are sports and teams are teams and the team dynamic is, is very unique. And so um, there's a, there's a huge crossover, Tom, and there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of things that, um, I've come to appreciate about coaching that maybe I took for granted um, as a reporter that I now are more in tune to, um, you know, and just and and just in, in helping uh, foster relationships with players on your team, um, which is just vitally important to the success of a team. And so it just it's it's opened my mind in a lot of ways as a journalist to, you know, what it is that the, the pros are dealing with on a on a daily basis. Um, and sometimes that, you know, we just kind of lose track of in the daily grind of covering the team and game to game and all of that. So, um, yeah, it's given me a new appreciation on a lot of things. Outstanding. I, I hope you picked up more from Ty Lu and Terry Francona than you did Freddie Kitchens, but, um, <laughs> I did. I tell you what, Francona, Francona, God bless him, was gracious enough last year. I, I explained to him what I was doing and he was like, he was all in because he, Tito, I don't know if you guys know this, was a really good high school player in Pennsylvania. He averaged like, I think, close to 20 points a game and probably could have gone to a number of schools, you know, before he went out to, to Arizona to play baseball. And he just loves to talk hoops. I mean, he is like an NBA and college basketball junkie. He goes to Arizona games, you know, constantly during the offseason. So I told him that I was coaching and I said, hey, would you ever, you know, if you got a moment, would it be OK if I brought down our head coach to talk to you? So sure enough, this is about 
you know, three hours before an Indians game one night, I brought Karen down and we spent an hour with Tito and just, you know, picking his brain about, you know, team dynamics and, you know, how do you do, deal with players under certain, certain circumstances and what have you? And when you have a team with high expectations, how do you deal with that? And he could not have been more gracious with his time and, and was just wonderful about it. And so, um, and I remember Ty Lu, you know, actually gave me some, some really good pointers about, you know, how to deal with players and how, you know, even after the timeout, you know, don't, don't assume that they know, Tom, when you send them back on the floor, because they probably didn't listen to you during the timeout and small things like that. So, you know, all these guys have been great. And, um, you know, I think in coaching, when you're in it and you understand how passionate you need to be in order to get the most out of your team, you really get a great appreciation for, for what these guys do on a, on a daily basis and especially, especially the great ones. And I think, you know, we would all agree that Frank Kona is in that small group of, of managers who have, have shown that they can do it, whether it's in Boston or Cleveland or whatever else. And they just have a, uh, an uncanny ability to connect with people. And I think that's why Tito has been so good for the Indians over the last few years. Well, Tom, you've been great for this podcast. Really appreciate you making some time for us tonight. This has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much. Hey, you're quite welcome. Hope you guys stay well and everybody out there, you know, we'll get through this sooner or later. We'll come on the other side of this. Sounds good. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome, guys. Take care. All right. That's going to do it for us for this week. As a reminder, you can subscribe to The Nail in the Coffin on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and everywhere else where you can uh, download your favorite podcasts. You can also stream us on waitingfornextyear.com. That's going to do it for us, for Travis Julie. I'm Tom Valentino. It's been The Nail in the Coffin. We'll talk to you again soon. Pit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!